0: So as we talked about anger last week, you remember we talked about how many of us are more angry than we should be at the things we should be angry about. We talked about how some of us are angry at the wrong things. And then we talked about how some of us need to be angry in the right amount and how that can be appropriate and constructive. Well, this week I'm saying much the same thing about grief. Some of us are more grieved than we should be about things we should be grieved about. Or we grieve over the wrong things. Or we need to accept grief, like just what happened in Inside Out, so that we might live lives that glorify God. So how do we grieve well? Well, many Psalms will show us that. The one I selected for today is Psalm 77. And it does what all the Psalms do. It gives you an emotional roadmap about how to feel about different life experiences and then how to sift those feelings through a God-centered framework. So let's just read the first nine verses. Verse one. I cry aloud to God, aloud to God, and he will hear me. In the day of my trouble, I seek the Lord. In the night, my hand is stretched out without wearying. My soul refuses to be comforted. When I remember God, I moan. When I meditate, my spirit thanks. You hold my eyelids open. I'm so troubled that I cannot speak. I consider... My days bold, the years long ago. I said, Let me remember my song of the night. Let me meditate in my heart. Then my spirit made a diligent search. Will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? Has his steadfast love forever ceased? Are his promises at an end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger shut up his compassion? So can you see the steam rising from the psalmist's head? He's mad as fire to God. It's God who keeps him from sleeping. It's God who torments him. It is God who has abandoned him. It's God who has left him to twist and turn in agony in his bed at night. But even though he's praying with great, great persistence, his trouble just won't let up. And eventually, it leads him to express his frustration with God who's not met his expectations. But when you hear those first nine verses, did you get it? Did you want to say like, come on, that's a little disrespectful. That's not how you talk to God. You see it in his tone. You see it in his words. But I want you to notice something in those nine verses. In his struggle, he has not turned away from God. He's turned toward God. I think in many ways what happens in verses 1 to 9 is that we see an example of godly grief. See, what godly grief does is it asks, it shouts, it struggles, it cries to be heard in heaven. But on the flip side, ungodly grief says that prayer won't do any good. Ungodly grief says God's not going to help me. Ungodly grief refuses to embrace loss. Ungodly grief refuses to dream or hope or to move with courage towards what we will one day become in heaven. And what ungodly grief most of all do is that you flee towards isolation. So the key in grief is to turn to God with all honesty. You can't be afraid to come to him with all your messiness and your grief. If you are afraid and you don't come, You'll bottle it all up within yourself. It's going to grow. It's going to fester. You're just going to talk your feelings over with yourself instead of with God in prayer. And as you engage in this unhelpful self-dialogue, inner dialogue, something is going to happen. You're going to come up with your own theology based on your experiences. That's what happens in verses 4 to 9. His personal experiences lead him to draw all kinds of conclusions that aren't true. Like he says, there there will be no favor, no love, no hope, no grace, no compassion for him from God. That God must have rejected him. And the psalmist is just doing here what we all do. We look at our circumstances. And then we interpret them to make meaning about who God is and who we are. So when you're in a season of suffering that's prolonged, you can begin to come to some conclusions about God that might not be true. See, here's what happens when we're in pain. When we suffer great loss, it's like you pick up a magnifying glass and the only thing you're willing to look at is the thing that hurts in your life. I remember uh, not long after uh, we had Brooks, uh, I don't know what happened. Something happened upstairs and everything. We don't have any carpet in our house. And, uh, we, our house has 10 foot ceilings So the stairs from first floor to the second floor. There's like 18 of them. And uh, a gentleman's bounding up the stairs. I don't know, something must happen happened to the kids. And she stubbed her toe, like her big toe, uh, and it was bad. Like she, she, It was really hurt, hurting her. And then she laughed about it a couple hours later. She's like, I can't believe my toe. My toe, I, I just had a baby. And my toe hurts more than I've hurt in the last several weeks. And that includes labor and delivery. My toe hurts as bad. But if you just stubbed your toe, you broke your big toe, you might be in horrible pain, maybe the worst pain in your life. But if you were to look at the health of the rest of your body, you might find that you're tremendously healthy. The reality is you're fine overall, but you're just in pain. And same thing when we go through suffering. We can't think about anything else but our pain. Our magnifying glass is completely zoned in on our pain point. Yet here's what we need to do. We've got to trade in our magnifying glass for a wide-angle lens. We've got to be able to capture the rest of reality and not just our pain, and that's what happens in verse ten. See, because the psalmist continues to pray, because the psalm does, psalmist doesn't give up, doesn't refuse to hope, he gets to verse ten. And verse ten says, "Then I said, I will appeal to this, to the years of the right hand of the Most High." Now, this is the second time the psalmist has used his memory. first time goes back in verse 6, but it was unsuccessful. But in verse 10, remembering produces real fruit. And I think that speaks to the process of grieving. There's no formula. It's not automatic. You can't just say, I'm going to remember the Lord. It's going to take immediately. It's going to take some time. It might take days or weeks or months or perhaps even years between the first attempt to activate hope by using your memory And the time by using your memory to activate hope a second time, and it actually works. But here's what helpful memory does it wants to go back to some time in the past to remember God's promises and His deeds. Think about God's promises. God's promises are what we see as His future grace, promise, something's going to come in the future. And his deeds are objective evidence of his past grace. So if you need grace today, if you need grace in the present, then you're going to need future grace in God's promises, and you're going to need past grace from his deeds. And that's what we see in verses 11 and 20. Verse 11, I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. I will ponder all your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. Your way, O God, is holy. What God is great like our God? You are the God who works wonders. You've made known your might among the peoples. You with your arm redeemed your people, the children of Jacob and Joseph, Salah. When the waters saw you, oh God, when the waters saw you, they were afraid. Indeed, the deep trembled. The clouds poured out water. The skies gave forth thunder. Your arrows flashed on every side. The crash of your thunder was in the whirlwind, in your lightnings, lighted up the world. The earth trembled and shook. Your way was through the sea, your path through the great waters, yet your footprints were unseen. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. Does this sound like the same duty? I mean, all of the language of verses 1 to 9, when he's angry at God, he's expressing his grief, his loss. How hard his life is, his suffering, his pain. And now you see verses 11 to 20. After he's remembered what God has done. See, all those seeds of faith that he sowed in verses 1 to 9 have now borne the fruit of verses 11 to 20. See, look at verses 1 to 7. You have your Bible open or it's on the screen. If we were to walk through there real closely and count the number of first-person pronouns. I, me, my. I, mean mine. Here's how many you would find in verse 1-7. 17. All right, take the last seven verses of this psalm, verses 14 to 20, and if you were to count how many times you see God referred to, guess how many you would come to? 17. See, here's what happens. He takes out the magnifying glass. He gets honest about his pain. He trades it in for a wide-angle lens, and what comes into view is God. And maybe that's what you need today. Maybe what you need today is that you need to get your magnifying glass, and you need to locate your pain point. You need to pray an honest prayer like the psalmist did in verses 1 to 9. You can't be afraid of all the messiness that that'll bring. Then you need to set your magnifying glass down. And you need to put on your wide angle lens and see what comes into view. And for God's people in the Old Testament, what comes into view in the wide-angle lens was the Exodus. What you see in verses 19 and 20, it says this: Your way was through the sea, the Red Sea, your path through the great waters. Remember, God parted the waters. Yet your footprints were unseen. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. See, here's what the psalmist is saying. God went through the waters first. He led them like a shepherd in the desert before they got to the promised land. They were no longer slaves. They were free. God had won their salvation. He was powerful because he parted the seas. He loved them by listening to their cries for rescue when they were slaves in Egypt. And now, when he looks back, when David looks back, It gives him perspective, and it gives him hope. It gives him perspective because his problems aren't nearly as big as Israel's problems when they had the waters in front of them and an army behind them. They were sitting ducks. But not only does it give them perspective, it also gives them hope. See, what memory of God's past does is that it engenders hope. It's not nostalgic. It's not just a mental act. What memory is, is this this creative borrowing from the past to give you a template of what God might do in the future. So while you're enduring painful loss, when you're enduring grief today, you've got to look back at your past and see how God's been faithful to you. And when I look back at my past, the previous 41 years of my life, here's what I see. I see God giving me a few family members who loved me with the love of Christ. I see a youth pastor who invested in me. I see a home church that took the Bible seriously when I was a child. I see really faithful friends at every turn in my life. I see mentors who have showed me the way and encouraged me right when I needed it. So when you look back, what do you see? Sure, I see all of those people, but I'll tell you what else I see. I see Jesus. See, in Hebrews 5, it says that Jesus prayed with loud cries and tears. He prayed in ways that the psalmist does here in the first half of the psalm. Jesus, too, was in great pain, especially during the week of his passion. He was rejected by those closest to him. He was in despair, such despair in the garden that he sweat blood. He was in unimaginable, physical pain due to his beatings and piercings. But the spiritual pain was the worst. See, the psalmist just feels rejected in verses 1 to 9. Jesus actually was rejected. He really was spurned. He really had lost favor. God's steadfast love for him really had ceased. God really had shut up his compassion from Jesus. And that's why Jesus prayed, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When he hung from the cross. See, the father was angry at Jesus because Jesus had taken on the sins of me and you. He had become the innocent lamb to be slain. His blood had to be spilled. You see, Jesus was the man of sorrows, according to Isaiah 53, verse three. And Jesus in his life, he just came up upon every wave of grief imaginable as he saw the pain in the world. Especially the pain that came from the days surrounding the cross. But even in all his grief, even in all his sorrow, he never retreated into isolation. Even though he was hemmed in on every side by suffering, he refused to give in to despair. And so here Jesus is, he's grieved before you. And now he waits for you at the end of your sorrow. Jesus has been perfected and he was resurrected through his suffering. So during your grief, your loss, your suffering, your pain, Jesus waits for you and he wants you to know that he's conquered all losses. And as important as it is to pray through those feelings in verses one through nine, you need to know that's just what they are. Because for Jesus, they were his reality. See, Jesus waits for you at the end of your sorrow. He's the victor. That's what gives you hope. Let me just close with a few practical things on grief. If you're in grief, if you've lost a loved one, if something really hard has happened uh, to you, that you've experienced great loss, something that you uh, were really bonded with, a a person or a thing, now it's gone, you've got to realize that there's lots of Different emotions you're going to experience, but beneath all of it is grief. Many people would say uh, that the stages of grief, you know, you've heard of them, that they're uh, mostly untrue and they're unhelpful. See, what really happens during grief, if you, you display anger one minute, sadness the next, then you go back to anger, then you start laughing, then you get angry again, then you get sad. You jump around like crazy. And when you know someone who's Lost someone or something dear to them, you've got to be ready just to ride the ways with them. Because they need you to respond with care and concern. And when you're operating from a framework of grief, you can do that regardless of their emotional state in the moment. Another tip: if you're grieving, you need to see that all your emotional experiences are signaling to others and to God, I need you. And I'm hurting. Many times we're embarrassed. We don't want to burden other people. But when that happens, you're isolated. You're keeping yourself from the care that you legitimately need. Even though I know that emotional responses during grief are so varied, if you could just present as sad, people will respond intuitively with care. See, grief is like a wound. And the instinct is to respond with, for those reasons last thing hope is more than a concept or a feeling it's practical and it gets real tangible when caring people are present see what caring people do is that they incarnate hope so when you know someone who's lost a loved one just hang in there they'll get lots of texts, lots of phone calls lots of flowers for about two weeks and then it's over What happens is that pain lasts for years. Here's what you can do you can just, in your calendar, set anniversaries for the people's loss that you're close to. You can set your calendar for six months out from the tragedy from the loss of a loved one, someone you know. And you can just remind them that you're here for them, that you're just listening here. So many times I've heard people say, I just don't know what to say. Here's the trick. Don't say anything. What they need is not words. What they need is for you to sit next to them and stay. Because, friends, that's what Jesus does for you. Jesus not only waits for you at the end of your sorrow, he's with you in the midst of it. He knows exactly what it's like. So may we cry out to God to help us when we're sad. May we help care for those who are. Father, this is so hard for us. Uh, Lord, we have in many ways been taught that just to keep things positive, to be upbeat. Uh, but Lord, we have our time to be with good sad. And so Lord, I pray that you help us do that. Lord, I, I pray for others of us, Lord, that we would see uh, that there really is hope, that we would not grieve in ungodly ways, Lord, that we would not retreat to isolation, uh, Lord, that we would not only Hold a magnifying glass. But Lord, that we would also use a magnify, use a wide angle glass. Lord, help us. We pray this. things.